Glad you're at church today. Uh, those of you online watching, so glad you joined us as well. We've been in a series, started last week, how to deal with imperfect people. And I'm sure there's some people in your life that when you hear the word imperfect people, you're like, yep, that's pretty much them. It's those people. And there are all kinds of things we would like to do to deal with them, right? But not all of them are kind and some of them are illegal. So we just choose not to deal with them in those ways uh, because we, you know, should be kind people. But the interesting thing is, in this series, as we dive into kind of the interpersonal relationships that we have with others and often the ways we think we want to deal with them, which when we say it that way, it kind of sounds like they're the problem, which most of us think they are the problem. But as we dive into scripture, most of the principles we, we, we talk about and we read about how to deal with them is actually pointed at the imperfect person that's right here and is dealing with our own hearts and what's going on in our own lives. And if you remember from last week, we talked about the imperfect people and we defined imperfect in that sense, uh, people that just have some crazy, absurd ideas about different topics, whether it's theology or politics or something else. But we, we, what we saw is it relates to secondary issues. It relates to secondary issues. We are to be space makers as followers of Jesus rather than space takers. And, and if God, point being, if God has accepted them, then who are we to not accept them? Which at the onset, if you are, if you, this is your first Sunday you missed last week, you're like, well, duh, that sounds so easy. Listen to last week's messages. It's anything but easy, right? Because it gets so emotional and we're tempted and the church was tempted to make uh, secondary issues primary uh, issues. Well, as we continue on today, today we're going to look at the imperfect people in our lives as it relates to those who have wronged us and those who have sinned against us. And what do we do with those people or how do we deal with that situation as we continue to live alongside people who have wronged us? And what we're going to look at and what Jesus is going to encourage us in is this, that we become peacemakers, that we learn to become peacemakers. Now here's the challenge with making peace. peace. Making peace is different than keeping peace. And we're gonna talk about that difference a, a little bit later. Keeping peace is just throwing stuff under the carpet. Making peace is really, really difficult. And, and generally speaking, humanity in history has not done a great job of this. More specifically speaking, Christians in history have not done a great job at this. Getting even more specific, I have not done a great job at this. And here's why often we struggle to be great peacemakers. We become our own worst enemies. And, and here's why. Because we typically respond to people's sin and people's wrongdoing against us, similarly to how we respond to people when they scare us, right? And how do we respond when people scare us? Well, sometimes we just fight, right? It's like, you scared me, you're like, right? And it's like, when people wrong us, we can respond this way, right? Fist for fist, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You do that, I'll do this. That isn't a great recipe for peace in a relationship. Another way we respond when people scare us, boo, is flight, right? It's like, we just start running, it's like, ah! And often we respond this way as well when it comes to conflict or to uh, uh, someone who wrongs us. We just run the other way and pretend it did not happen. And that's not a great recipe for peace in a relationship. 
The third way we respond when people scare us is often freeze, right? We just kind of, uh, or sometimes some people fall, right? I could have used every, any, either one. But we often do this as well when it relates to when people wrong us. And we just freeze up and we do nothing to them directly, but we start talking to everybody else about what they did to us or what they did that was wrong. See, being a peacemaker is really, really challenging. And the challenge is we become our own worst enemies when it, when it, when it comes to making peace. And here's the other challenge. You can do everything right. And we're going to look at what Jesus said about making peace. You could follow it to a T and yet still not end up with peace. Because it takes two to make peace. It takes two to reconcile. And this is one of the challenges of peace. Sometimes when you do it right, you feel like you did it wrong because you didn't get it. And sometimes when you do it wrong, well, you still think you did it wrong because you didn't get it, right? It's like, do I ever do this right? Well, the only way we really know is if we follow both Jesus's example and also what Jesus taught. So what did Jesus say about being a peacemaker? And what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, first of all, we need to understand that being a peacemaker and being a peacekeeper are not the same. And Jesus is going to define for us the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. We'll talk a little bit about peacekeeping because there is actually a call for Christians in some circumstances to be peacekeepers. But as it relates to sin and offenses, we are called to be peacemakers. So if you have your Bibles, there's this famous passage where Jesus outlines for his followers how to be great peacemakers. It's found in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 15. And here's what Jesus says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one, one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, right away, this passage kind of sets us off because the very first start, the beginning of peacemaking is confrontational, right? There is no peace without a confrontation, without confronting. But here's the, th here's the deal. As we get into confronting and you read the rest of what Jesus says, we could get the idea that really making peace is about righting wrongs. And our job is to confront people who are wrong and we right their wrongs and we move from wrong to wrong and we right all the wrongs and that's how we make peace and that would be completely misunderstanding Jesus' heart when he says this. Yes, confronting is needed as it relates to sin. But confronting sin is not about being right. It's about being reconciled. And there's a different heart between the two. There's a different heart between the two. And I bet you've experienced the different heart. I, I imagine in your life at one point, there was someone who was like really right. And they came and confronted you about where you were wrong. But they had no desire for you to be reconciled. Their one mission in life was to be right and stand up for what's right and bring justice. And you were on the wrong side of right. And they gave it to you. And I bet your response was fight, flight, or freeze. It did not invite you in 
to reconcile. But as we dive into the the heart of what Jesus says, the heart of what Jesus says is that the goal, the end, the, the, the purpose of it all is reconciliation. That does not mean that the right is not needed. It is a key ingredient. See, here's the thing. You can be right and not be reconciled. In fact, some people that are right, they just leave a wake of unreconciled relationships behind them with their rightness. You can be right and not be reconciled, but you cannot be reconciled without rightness being present. Because for reconciliation, for two things that are broken to come together, what's wrong must be acknowledged and accepted. And so it is an important ingredient, but it is not the the heart behind uh, uh, confronting sin. We see this actually show up, the heart of Jesus's message show up in what Jesus says right before he says confront sin. And it's a famous parable. I'll read it. It starts in verse 12. This famous parable that shows us the heart of both our heavenly father and from that heart, Jesus says, now confront sin. This is what Jesus says. And you've probably heard this, this parable before. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? You've heard this before, right? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And everyone's like, yeah, we know this about shepherding. What's your point, Jesus? Here's, here's his point. In the same way, your Father in heaven, this is a story about your heavenly Father, is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. In essence, Jesus tells this story that shows the heart of our heavenly Father through a shepherd and his sheep. And the sheep wanders off. The sheep is in the wrong. They are in sin. They are at fault. And what does the shepherd do? He goes after the sheep, not to find the sheep and beat the sheep and say, you are so wrong. Here's the right. No, 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 no. The sheep will need to know that what he did or she did was wrong. Absolutely. But the goal for the shepherd is to find the sheep and bring it back into relationship, to reconcile the sheep with him and the flock again. And that makes the heavenly father happy. See, confronting sin is not just about being right, though right is needed. The goal of confronting sin for the Jesus follower is to be reconciled, to find reconciliation between us and God and between us and each other. So now that we have the heart of the message, let's dive back into kind of the weeds of verse 15, 16, and 17 and just kind of tear apart how do we become peacemakers? And what is the pathway to being a great peacemaker? And what you'll find, and this is interesting, the pathway that Jesus puts in front of us is the same pathway that our Heavenly Father did to reconcile us to himself. In essence, Jesus asks us to be like our Heavenly Father. Here's what Jesus says, back to verse 15. So if your brother or sister sins, now brother or sister, Jesus is talking about this in the context of his followers, okay? So if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
It does not mean you can't apply these principles. In fact, I would dare say that if you applied these principles, you will become a better peacemaker. Follow what Jesus says. The last one you won't be able to follow because it has to do with church and maybe you're not a churchy person, but all the other ones in interpersonal relationships, you can follow what Jesus says. So Jesus says, if your brother or sister is talking about those within uh, the faith, sins. Now, what does he mean by sin? Obviously, it's wrongdoing. An offense has occurred. But is Jesus relating to people who sin out there? Like that person's living in sin to God? Or is he talking about people who sin against me right here? And I have a conflict and our relationship is broken. And scholars disagree. Is he talking about someone in sin out there or someone sin right here? Someone that we have personally witnessed who sinned or someone who personally sinned against us? And I think it could be both. And regardless of how we talk about it, we can apply this peacemaking method that Jesus gives to either scenario. Now, when Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, he's talking about offenses and wrongs committed. He is not talking about aggravation or annoyances, okay? And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference because they feel the same, right? Some people who just annoy you, it's like, I just feel like you wronged me. It's like, actually, they just annoyed you really bad, right? So it's like, sometimes it's hard to know the difference, but how we respond is absolutely different according to what uh, Jesus' followers are called to do. See, sin is a you and me issue. It means our relationship has been broken and we need to do something to bring it back together. Annoyances and aggravations are simply a me issue, which means I have to get over it and I need to deal with me. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Patient literally means this, long suffering. So it's like, man, you're annoying. Just suffer a little longer with them. They have not sinned against you. They're just annoying, right? That's what bearing means to put up under the weight. In essence, what we are called to be peacekeepers as it relates to annoyances, as it relates to aggravations. This is what we talked about the entire message last week, being a space maker. It had to do with being a peacekeeper, with opening the space for those who would think differently than us on secondary issues and often personality things. Jesus is not talking about peacekeeping. He's saying sin is something we confront. Annoyances are something we simply bear. Sin is something we confront, which is why he says, if your brother or sister sins, and the next word is so, so important. It sets up the entire trajectory of being a space or a peacemaker. And if you don't do the next one, inevitably, you will miss out on what it means to be a peacemaker. He says this, if your brother or sister sins, go. Go is an action word. It's a terrifying word. It means that we make up the space between the person and us, the person who offended and wronged us. We go to them, much like if you remember the parable Jesus told, where the sheep wandered off, and what did the shepherd do? He goed. Is that a word? He went, right? He went. He went after the sheep. And this is what Jesus says. If your brother or sister sins against you, go. But here's often what we do instead. And maybe you can relate to some of these. Sometimes when our brother or sister sins against us, we just kind of stew over. I'm so angry, right? We fret about. Sometimes we just discuss it with others, right? It's like, I just got to 
Can, can I tell you what they just did to me? Can I just tell you what they did out there to God? Like, can you believe what? And we start talking. Uh, sometimes we just present it as a prayer request, right? I just got this prayer request about this person who did this to me. And here's the deal. Yes, sometimes as people have wronged us, we need to talk to some others, probably someone who is disconnected to the situation and in, in anonymous ways to get perspective. Am I seeing this right? But if we do these as an end, that is borderline like gossip and slander, which actually happens to be sin. And so Jesus comes along and says, no, no, don't do this unless it's on the pathway to doing this. When your brother or sister sins, you go to them like the shepherd went after the sheep. Now, I'm going to take my kind of preaching hat off and just do some pastoral wisdom, okay? So what I'm about to say next is not in the Bible, okay? So don't ask me where the verse and chapter is. But this is just a little bit of pastoral wisdom as it relates to dealing with conflict. Oftentimes when our brother and sister sins, we define go as email, message them on social media, we text them, we might, if we have the courage, we might phone them. And I want to, in pastoral wisdom, say these are not great options. And here's why. Especially texting, messaging, emailing. Here's why conflict almost always falls apart when we do it that way. is because someone sends a message that is like offensive or you offended me and I'm bringing my rightness to you. And a lot of times what happens is we read it and then we reread it, and then we misread it, and then we, we read it with filling in the blanks of the things that they didn't say, and we make up all kinds of stories of what they meant that maybe they didn't mean, and the thing grows, and it grows, and it grows, and when we actually have a confrontation, it is far bigger, far bigger than it was ever meant to be. Having conflict over email is just, it's not, does it work from time to time? I'm sure there's some success stories. But from what I've seen, there are way more uh, uh, failure stories than success stories. And here's the thing about emailing, texting, messaging. Texting, messaging, emailing is a really good way to get facts across. If your heart is just to tell them where they're wrong, probably emailing's a great way because you can just get the facts across. Here's where you're in the wrong. But what's the heart What's the heart of confronting for the follower of Jesus? Is it just to let them know they're wrong? No, that's a pathway to something way bigger. It's reconciliation. And so I want to encourage you, go in person and do what Jesus said, go. I know in the New Testament, they didn't have texting and messaging and all this. So Jesus, what would he say today? I don't know, but I think he'd say, just go to them face to face. So why do we, still pastoralism, why do we simply fall for a kind of messaging and, instead of face to face? I put this little chart together. I think it helps us understand maybe why we go to these other methods. It has to do with the potential impact versus how we feel, okay? So messaging. The potential impact for reconciliation, it's the most dangerous. But here's the reason why we go for it. It feels the safest. There's distance between us. We don't have to face them face to face. It's like, I'm just going to message them that, you know, I'm ticked at them. I'm going to message them that they wronged me. It feels the safest, but it's the most dangerous. Phoning, there's a decent amount 
of potential for, for reconciliation, and it feels modestly safe. In-person has the greatest potential impact, but it feels the least secure, and it feels the most risky because we actually have to face them. But here's why it has the greatest potential impact. Because communication is more than words spoken, isn't it? Communication is your facial expression. Communication is the tone of voice you use. You don't get that when you message someone. And here's the other thing, why having communication and, and phoning can be decent for this reason is because the moment there's a misunderstanding, it gets it gets understood properly right away, right? Oh no, I didn't mean that, no, no. And in, in a texting conversation, in an email, it's like two weeks go by and you're filled with anxiety and you built all this story that may not even be true simply on a misunderstanding. And so reconciling is best done person to person, which is why I think Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go. Okay, so pastoral wisdom done. Now we're going back to Jesus, okay? You ready? If your brother or sister sins, go. If you thought that was scary, check out what he says next. It gets even scarier. He says, and point out their fault. <laughs> really? I'm already scared of them. They wronged me. Now I have to tell them where they wronged me? And, and, and when you get to this point in the, in the peacemaking process, and it's necessary, you don't get peace outside of this without pointing out their fault. You can't reconcile unless rightness is there. The reason this is such a, ch uh, a challenge is this, is this is risky. This is risky because it is very hard to remain faultless while pointing out someone else's faults. Let me say that again. It is very hard to remain faultless while pointing out someone else's fault. And when we get to this point, we tread carefully. In fact, Jesus doesn't go into like the nuances of how to do this, but the apostle Paul, some 20 or 30 years later, he comes to the same teaching and he's like, I got to give you some gold here. I got to give you some, some, some ways to process so that you do this well, because everything can fall apart if you don't do this well. And he does it in Galatians 6. So if you have your Bibles, just write beside, just circle and point out their fault, circle that, put a line and say, and just write Galatians 6, 1. And you can write these three points because what Paul's going to give us is absolute gold as to how we have that conversation. Here's what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, same thing Jesus is talking about, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Three things and I highlighted them for you. The first thing, if you're going to point out someone else's fault, Paul says you need to make sure you are living by the Spirit. This is not something you do in the flesh. Like, I feel like they wronged me. I'm going after them. You're going to miss it. No, no, this is something you bring before the Lord. And you say, God, am I right? Is my heart right? In essence, you start with you. You're like, they wronged me. You start with you and you say, is my heart right? Is there something that I want to kind of push on them? I'm mad at them. I want to retaliate on them. Is my heart truly for a reconciled relationship or is it to get them? Where's your heart? Is it the heart of the father or the heart of your old flesh? The other thing he says is, so start with you, those who are spiritual. He goes on and says, and be gentle. Here's what harshness does. When someone comes at you to show you your fault in a harsh way, undoubtedly it gets your back up, right? And it stops being about the thing and it starts being about you're mad at each other. 
And you miss the opportunity for reconciliation. The other thing is, harshness actually just simply shows your own heart. That is not in the right place. And so Paul says, no, no, no. As you do this, you start with your own heart and you be gentle because your goal is not simply to be right. You're gonna bring the right, but your goal is to reconcile, to see that they are invited in, pulled in to be reconciled in the relationship. And then thirdly, watch yourself. And I think there's two reasons why Paul says, watch yourself. One reason, and he doesn't say this specifically, but one reason is when we stand in judgment over others in this kind of way where we put, we, we say, hey, here's where you're wrong, we can be easily tempted to self-righteousness and pride because I'm your superior now, declaring over you what you're, where you're wrong. And so we got to watch ourselves that uh, self-righteousness and pride do not creep in. The other reason, the other reason I think we need to watch ourselves is, is, uh, is simply because we can be dragged into the same sin that we're confronting, right? I'm gonna confront you on your sin and suddenly I'm the one that stepped into the exact same sin that you were struggling with. So Paul says, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit, Spirit-filled should restore that person in a gentle way. That's the way the Father does it. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. The way Jesus said it. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And he continues and says, just between the two of you. Now, why would it be important? Because remember, the goal is reconciliation. If you come with 20, 30 people that say, hey, here's where you're wrong, the back comes up and you start a fight, right? But if you come in this kind of humble, gentle way, it invites them in. Say, maybe I am wrong. In essence, Jesus says, don't make something public that hasn't first been given the opportunity to be dealt with in private. Don't make something public that hasn't first been given the opportunity to be dealt with in private. And when you do, if they listen, and that's the goal, if they listen to you, you have won them over and reconciliation is the win, right? But I said earlier, you could do all of verse 15 perfectly, like perfect like Jesus would. It does not guarantee reconciliation because it takes two to reconcile. So what if they don't listen? That's where Jesus goes next. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, not a whole crowd, but one or two others, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now you notice this is in quotes. Remember that, because we're going to get back to that. In essence, Jesus says, start by getting others involved and a small group of others. And it seems to be in the progression that he's going to go to, that this is to, to encourage influence that maybe they will just be influenced a little bit, right? You want to influence, not, not pressure them, but maybe with two or three or one other, there's this influence thing that happens. Now, what about the quote? What did that have to do with anything? Well, the quote that every matter must be established by two or three witnesses is taken from Deuteronomy in the law where the writer of the law, Moses, says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, in this context, it seems to be different than how Jesus talks about it. This context is in the context of a court right? You wronged me. We're sitting in court. We got witnesses on the stand. We're trying to figure out what the truth is. But in Jesus's context, it seems to be this thing of influence. But I wonder, and this is what I think what Jesus was meaning is, is when Jesus quotes this, in essence, what he's saying is when you pull someone aside and say, hey, I think you're at fault, and they don't listen, and you bring two or three others along and say, I think you're, you're at fault, 
The heart of the person who brought the first accusation is to be done in humility. Remember, you did it in gentleness, but also humility to say, what if the two or three that came along say, oh, actually, hearing the whole story from both sides, I don't know if they're as wrong as you think they are. And in that moment, we who think someone else has a fault are to submit ourselves to the discernment of the group. And here's why this is important. It is nearly impossible to be just when we call for personal justice. It is nearly impossible to be just in our call for personal justice. When you've been wronged, it's hard to be just in a call for justice, and here's why. Because our emotions get involved and it skews our vision as to what really happened. And a small offense can become a big offense. And so there's this aspect that we submit ourselves to the testimony of the two or three. But let's say the two or three say, no, you're right, they did wrong. What happens if they still don't listen? right? What if they still don't listen? Jesus goes on, but if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. To this, we're like, say what? And we're going to take next message to talk about that one verse and one concept that comes out of that verse. You'll have to come back next time, okay? But for today, today, confrontation is needed for reconciliation to take place. But we do not confront sin simply to get the right righted. That is simply a process along the way for the goal of reconciliation. But here's my question. Why? Why would we go through all of that for reconciliation? I mean, that's just hard. That's just work. That's uncomfortable. Why would Jesus command his followers even follow this process when it's so stinking hard? Here's why. Because Jesus understood that reconciliation is essential to life and reconciliation is essential to the quality of our lives. In regards to the first one, reconciliation is essential for life. God is life. And when our relationship because of sin is broken with God, we are separated from life. And so Jesus comes along and says, if you see someone in sin towards God, you need to tell them because they need to, they need to be reconciled. They are separate from life. In fact, Jesus' brother James in James 5 said, if you find someone who is in sin, you show them the error of their ways and they come back to God, you have just saved someone from death and covered over a multitude of sins. James, the brother of Jesus, was like, Jesus knew what he was talking about. Reconciliation is essential to life, eternal life, but here's the other thing, and you know this from experience. Reconciliation is also essential to the quality of our lives. I bet in your life, the thing that keeps you up at night, the thing that destroys you from the inside out, has a lot less to do with the vehicle you were working on that you just couldn't figure out, with the house you were building where the plans didn't quite match, where the, you were teaching some kids and they were just kind of disobedient that day. That can keep you up at night sometimes, but I, I bet it pales in comparison to when you have an offense, conflict with your mom that's unresolved, with your dad that is not reconciled, with your children that has not been repaired, with your parents that continues on and on. Reconciliation is essential to the quality of our lives. And Jesus said, I want you to be peace makers. 
Peacemakers like your heavenly father is a peacemaker who confronts sin, but it's just not about him being right. It's about him being reconciled to us and us being reconciled to him. This is the heart of the father. And Jesus comes along and says, would you do what your heavenly father has done for you? Would you do now what your heavenly father has done for you? Now, I want to ask you as you think about reconciliation, as you think about where you're at in the process of reconciliation, which one of these do you feel like you do really well at? And which one is it like, I think I need to get better at? Here's the process all over again. Jesus said, first you start by going to the person, not going around or to others, you just go to. That one can be tough. Then he said, keep it private. Don't make it public until you've been given an opportunity to be dealt with in private. And then as you go and you keep it private, here's the heart in which you do it. He said, start with you, those of you who are spiritual. Check your own heart and be gentle because harshness will always push them away. But we're trying to invite people in. And then watch yourself that you don't fall into temptation of sin, the sin of self-righteousness and pride, or the same sin that you're confronting. And if all of this doesn't work, then possibly get one or two others involved. And remember, the heart in all of this is reconciliation. So I want to ask you, which one of the, at what point is, it, is this something you struggle with? And I said earlier, oftentimes we're our own worst enemies. See, because some of us are, are people pleasers. And we don't have a hard time with the heart but we will sweep sin and offenses under the rug and we'll never confront them in a desire to have reconciliation. But here's the deal, and you know this if you're a peacemaker or a, a people pleaser. You don't live with peace in those relationships. You carry the offense with you and it's broken as you go from relationship to relationship. You never have peace. And so maybe for you, the challenge is to go and confront. That just seems like, really? For others of us, we're right people, right? We're truth people. It's like when there's not justice, we just, we love to right wrongs. And we're like, we're good at confronting people, but shoot, I don't know if it's ever really about reconciliation. It's about putting people in their place. And if this is the godly way, if this is Jesus's way to reconcile, I need to get better at those or that area. As you consider maybe brokenness in relationships that you have right now, what might Jesus be calling you to? As you consider not just being a peacekeeper as it relates to sin, but being a peacemaker, like your heavenly Father has made peace with you. If I could leave two words with you as you go on the peacemaking journey. Let me leave these two words. A uh, number of years ago when our daughter was going to um, uh, kindergarten, she was super anxious and super worried. She didn't know any of the kids. We hadn't put her in play school or preschool or anything. So this was like brand new territory for her. And uh, she was super scared and nervous. And we started talking about, you know, what she could do. And there's two words that came to my mind that be have become the mantra for her life. And it's become the mantra for our family when we think about what it means not just to follow Jesus, but to go into hard situations. And I said these two words. I said, if you do these two, two things... I'll be so proud of you. And if you do these two things, your heavenly father will be proud of you. And I simply said, daughter, I want you to be brave. She's like five years old. I just want you to be brave. 
I know it's scary. I just want you to be brave. And I want you to be kind. And if you're brave and you're kind, it'll go a long way in having a good kindergarten experience. And it'll go a long way in being a good follower of Jesus. And as I thought about reconciliation, if I could leave two words with you as you think about being a peacemaker, would you simply be brave? And it's going to take a lot of bravery. Because making peace is not for the faint of heart. And would you be kind? Kind like your heavenly father. And I think if you're brave and you're kind, and if we're brave and we're kind, we're going to be a long way down the road of being those who have become peacemakers. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.